we pick up in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. A good while where? He's just been in Corinth. He's been there at least 18 months so far, the longest he's been anywhere. He'll end up being in Ephesus about three years, but at this time, it's the longest he's really been in one place. God told him that uh, not to be afraid because he had many people in that city. I just thought that was really cool. I didn't mention that last week. I didn't have time to, to mention all of it, but uh, to see that God says, no, Paul, I've got people there. Therefore, I need you to stay and I need you to speak and not be quiet because when you speak, people will get saved because they're mine. They're mine, they're there, but you're the tool, the instrument that I'm using to save them through you preaching to them. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How will they hear if nobody's sent to preach? So I think that is so cool. I think about our own county. You wonder how many people the Lord has in Fluvanna County. And it seems that the more people we share with, the more people he has. Isn't that cool? So he remained there still a good while. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. So he hops on a ship, leaves Corinth. We don't know why he didn't get run out of town. He didn't get attacked or stoned or imprisoned or anything like that. It's just time is up. He's got somewhere to go. He's got a plan. So he takes leave of the brethren. He sails across the sea there for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila, his new friends, his new co-workers who he met in Corinth. They were all shared the same trade. They were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centuria for he had taken a vow. Just a mention by Luke. Luke kind of runs through the end of this second missionary journey uh, really quickly, and we begin his third missionary journey by the time we get to the end of verse 23. He's just kind of moving through this quickly. This vow, it seems likely a Nazarite vow. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, it was a, a sort of a vow of abstinence, commitment to the Lord, a total consecration, I'm not going to touch any any wine, nothing to do with grapes or anything like that. That was forbidden. And they would let their hair grow long. As some people believe John the Baptist had taken, you know, was a Nazarite in terms of taking a vow. Now, what he'll do is he'll grow his hair long and then he has it cut off at Centuria. He's going to take it with him because he's heading to Jerusalem for a feast time. And when he gets there, he'll offer that to God with a sin offering. Now, I thought I put myself in the story all the time, and I thought, what if I had cut off my hair and offered it to God as an offering? He'd say, like, is that it? I thought you loved me. I said, well, Lord, if you loved me, you know, we we won't go there. (laughs) So verse 19 says, and he came to Ephesus. He's now crossed into Asia Minor. He had been blocked from going to Ephesus on his previous attempt. Remember, the Spirit blocked him from Ephesus. He headed north and blocked there, and he ended up heading to Europe. But now he passes through Ephesus. That's where the boat lands. And uh, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. That's going to be important in a little bit. And he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So which seems to be his normal practice. Now we're going to leave off discussion of Ephesus for now because we're going to come to a major section in chapter 19 where we'll talk more about, you know, the culture and the, the atmosphere and the idolatry and all that. So Permit me to skip over it quickly here, knowing that we'll come to it later on. He came to Ephesus, left them there, enters the synagogue, reasons with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, that's not real common. Instead of running him out of town, they say, hey, we want you to stay here longer. He did not consent. 
He said, I'd love to stay, but I got to go. Sometimes we struggle with that as Christians, right? Like, I got to go. I got places to be and, and people to see and things to do. So he doesn't stay, but he says why. He tells them why. He took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. So it was feast time in Jerusalem. And he wanted to make sure he got there in time. So it's okay. Sometimes we've got a plan and sometimes there can be needs that arise and you go, no, you know what? I've got a plan. I want to stick to the plan. And that's what Paul does here. Sometimes your plan is made to be interrupted and sometimes your plan is made to be kept, which is which that's up to you and God to decide. But he does say, I will return again to you, God willing. And I just love that he adds that. It's a great way to live your life, recognizing that I don't do anything if it's not God's will. I want to come back. It's my plan to come back. I intend to go back. But who knows what could happen in my life between now and then. If my plan come back, but if God wills, then I will. Because he knows that because the last time he planned to go there, he got blocked. So God wills, I'll be back. He leaves him with that promise and he sails from Ephesus. He lands back on the coast in Israel when he had landed at Caesarea, that Caesarea by the sea, it's north of Jerusalem, right on the coast there. That's where he lands. And he first goes up, which is actually south to Jerusalem. Anytime we speak of Jerusalem in the Bible, we're always going to talk about going up to Jerusalem. The Psalms are songs of ascent. Why? Because of elevation foremost. Jerusalem sits on a hilltop. So anytime people go, they go up from the valley, go up to Jerusalem. It's both geographical in terms of elevation. It's also spiritual. Man, when you go to Jerusalem, when we drive into Jerusalem in the bus, it's just like you are ascending. It's awesome. It's an awesome experience. If, if you've not had that, it's, it's a once in a lifetime kind of thing. So he goes up to Jerusalem, visits the church there, the mother church, so to speak. And then he goes down, which is north to Antioch there in Syria, which is his sending church. So he checks in with his sending church. And that will end his second missionary journey. Now, we don't know how long he stayed there. It just says, verse 23, after he had spent some time there, he hung out for a while. But you know what happened? In his heart, he begins to think about all the churches he planted on his first missionary journey when he went out with who, guy? Do you remember? Who was he with this on his first missionary journey? With Barnabas. And all the churches he planted there in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And he's just thinking about these disciples. He goes, you know, I want to go back. I want to check on them because there's no Bibles. There's no pastors. There's these little groups of people that he's left having preached to them. And he's worried about them. So he says, I want to go back and strengthen them. So thus begins Paul's third missionary journey. And it just says, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. We've just covered a journey of about 1,500 miles in those few verses. But we move through that to get to the bulk of our study for today. Verses 24 through 28 of chapter 18 are in pair with verses 1 through 7 of chapter 19. These things are made to be looked at together. You'll see why as we go through. And just by way of, I'll say, a preemptive strike, I'll let you know that volumes and of commentaries have been written on these passages. These passages have proved to confound Bible scholars, and Bible scholars disagree 
about exactly what was going on in these passages. So as we talk about them, I want you to give me the freedom to say, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, which means I'm not going to say, this is the way it must be. There are good scholars on either side, which the sides I'll show you as we go through, and recognize that there are some things in these passages that are confusing. And we go, you know what? I'm really not quite sure. And I think that in this church, you appreciate when your pastor tells you, I'm not sure. And that I have that freedom to do that because I read, and as, as much as I read, as much as I get my hands on, the problem is nobody agrees. So I'm going to go, you know what? I like to stay safe in the eyes of God. Unless I know for sure, I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord. So I'll give you kind of, here's the points, here's the discussion, and you all can take it out and hash it out for yourselves. There are some things we can learn for certain from these passages, and that's what we'll focus on. Okay? We together on that? So we're going to meet one person in Ephesus and then a group of people in Ephesus. We're going to meet a guy named Apollos, and then we're going to meet 12 disciples. And we'll see how they connect and what they have in common and what we have to learn from that. Just to, again, to give you kind of an intro, what they have in common is that they're both missing something. They're missing something. Now, I don't know when the last time is you lost something. But boy, when I'm missing something, it drives me crazy. I don't like to be missing something. I like to have it all to, to you know, everything in its place. Well, these folks were missing something not physically, but spiritually. And I think that, that those things would be true today, although we don't like to admit it, we may not like to talk about it. We live in the, hey, let's be politically correct, let's not challenge, let's not be judgmental. But there are some people in their Christian lives, they're missing something. Well, what are they missing? Well, that's why you came this morning, isn't it? But we want to find out what are they missing, and am I missing it? See, we don't like to miss stuff. Well, I don't want to, there's something I want it. I don't want to be missing it. So that's why we buy new technology all the time. I don't want to be missing anything. So we first meet Apollos. Verse 24 says, A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So we get a lot of detail about this guy. I don't know how many things, six, seven, eight things we learn about this guy, Apollos, which is more than we get about a lot of other people as we read uh, in the Bible. So we're meant to say, hey, here's Luke wants to direct us to understand some things about this guy, Apollos. First, he's Jewish. We're with that. Second, he's born at Alexandria. He's not from Northern Virginia. He's from Egypt. He's from Egypt. And the interesting thing about where he's born is Alexandria is to the south. Alexandria in Egypt would be right on the southern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and it is to Egypt and to the south what Athens was to Greece in the north. This was the Jewish academic center. There's estimates as to how many Jews lived in Alexandria at the time. A huge Jewish population there. And uh, this was a, a hotbed of education and academics. They had a library in Alexandria that had 700,000 volumes. That's not a mistake. 700,000 volumes. And that's before Barnes and Noble and Amazon and the printing press and all that. They were handwritten books and scrolls in this library. 
from some of the greatest minds that lived in the world at that time. So an impressive library. This was also the place where if you're familiar with a book called the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Tell me, you know, the Old Testament was written in what language, gang? Hebrew, Hebrew. So in Alexandria, you had a group of Hebrew scholars that translated the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek. And so when we read the New Testament and they quote the Old Testament, oftentimes it's quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's all free information. Just to give you an idea of the background of this superstar named Apollos. He's an eloquent man, so he's well-learned. He's a good speaker. He's mighty in the scriptures. This guy knows the word of God. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. And he comes to Ephesus. Why did he come? We don't know for sure. Where did he get all his learning? Did he get it in Alexandria? Did he spend some time in Jerusalem? We don't know all those details, but we do know he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, which means he was boiling over, just literally to me, uh, water that's boiling or, or hot. He was, this guy was on fire. Nowadays, everything's on fire. The church is on fire. Christians are on fire. Everything's on fire. Well, Apollos was on fire for the Lord. That's what it says here. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. So the word accurately is an interesting word. It means to be extreme. So a lot of times this word acrobos is the Greek word. It's used of love when someone in the Bible says you are dearly beloved. So you're not just loved, you're extremely loved or dearly beloved. So when you apply that to his teaching, he teaches with extreme accuracy the word of God. So I call this guy, he's the sermonator. I mean, this guy is a powerful preacher. He knows the word. He is concerned with accuracy. He is concerned with precision. I mean, this guy could teach a class on preaching. But he's missing something. Although he only knew the baptism of John. You can only teach what you know. And he didn't know what he was missing. He had a lot of information. He taught a lot. Look at that. It says he taught accurately the things, the things of the Lord. One might question that for all his learning and for all his passion for his subject, and I'll clarify that, all his passion for his subject, you know people, maybe you've had a professor or a teacher that teaches biology or, or other science or math, and they're just passionate for their subject, right? Doesn't mean they're a Christian. They're just passionate for their subject. It's possible that Apollos and all his learning and all his education and all his zeal and his fervency for the things of the Lord, he understood the Old Testament, that he didn't know Jesus. You see, he taught about Jesus. He knew about Jesus. And I know a lot of people that know about Jesus. They can quote scripture. They know the Bible. But you can tell when you meet them, they don't know Jesus. I've met people. I've met pastors like that. They don't know Jesus. And so it's possible, and some would speculate, well, is Apollos a Christian or not? This is the question we're going to be asking ourselves as we go through about Apollos and about these 12. Are they Christians or not? And we don't know the answer to that in terms of there's no information about that. What we do know is that he lacked the further knowledge. What he knew was the baptism of John. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. When John preached, you can read it, Luke chapter 3, John comes on the scene, he preaches to people, 
hey, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Hey, God is coming. Quote there from Isaiah, you know, the, the messenger of the Lord is coming. Behold, make way for the Lord. He was the forerunner. And he preached, hey, guys, listen, get your lives in order because God is coming and we got to be ready. So repent, change your life, turn back to God. And then they would say, well, what does that look like? And he would tell them, okay, you soldiers, stop being mean to people. You tax collectors, don't take more than is right. And so all these good fruits of repentance, there was a change. He said, got to change your life because God is coming. want to be ready for him. So he was calling people to be good, to repent and to change. Those are good things, right? Can you say that? That's a good thing. And some of you have come in that, well, well, I just need to go to church because, you know, I got to get some things in order in my life. I got to just, my marriage is in trouble or, well, my finances are bad or I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with addiction. And you can come in for that reason and we can tell you, hey, repent and do good things. And you can still not be saved. And you can still not know Jesus. You can still not be a follower of Jesus. You see, he was a follower of John the Baptist. He'd been baptized into John's baptism. But John himself said, hey, it's not about me. John said, my job is to point you to the one who's coming, Jesus, and he's going to baptize you. Remember, Jesus got baptized by John. Spirit of God comes upon him. But John said of Jesus, he'll baptize you with what, folks? The Holy Spirit. You see, evidently, Apollos didn't know the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes from Jesus. That's interesting to me because watch what happens next. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So there he is in the synagogue talking to the Jews, Aquila and Priscilla. They're in church on Sunday or literally in the synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath. And the guest speaker that day is, well, we have today our guest speaker all the way from Alexandria in Egypt, the well-educated man, Apollos. And he gets up and he preaches his sermon and it is awesome and it is flowery and it's three points and you know the whole thing he's got laid out. And after the sermon, Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26 tells us, he spoke boldly in the synagogue and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Now, the sermon is over. Apollos steps to the side and everybody comes. Oh, Apollos, that was, can I say, that was great sermon, pastor. Great sermon, pastor. Great sermon. That was great. And now Priscilla and Aquila come up. And they're like, wow, that, that was pretty powerful stuff. I'm, I'm Priscilla. You know, this is my husband, Aquila. And, you know, we just got into town here. We came from uh, Corinth. And it's great to hear you speak. But, you know, I'd love to talk to you more about some things that you said or actually some things you didn't say. And he's like, really? Can you imagine the humility it would take? These guys are tent makers. They haven't been to Dallas Theological Seminary. They haven't been to Westminster. They don't have the education that he has, but they've been under the Apostle Paul. They know about the new covenant. Remember, John is sort of the last prophet of the old covenant. And the new covenant comes in with the baptism of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit of Jesus ascends to heaven. He's, he's buried. He's, he's crucified. He's buried. He rises from the dead, ascends to the Father, and then pours out the Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Pentecost happens. And evidently, Apollos didn't get that. He doesn't know about Pentecost. And he's only got this connection with John the Baptist. So he's calling people to repentance, man. And I think we got a lot of that in the church, don't we? Everybody, repent. 
you guys are lousy Christians. I think this is what's the, one of the troubles that we're facing in the church. And the people recognize that everybody's beating up the sheep. You guys know you're supposed to be better Christians. Just be better Christians. Do things better. But a lot of people you meet, they don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't know about the indwelling life of the Spirit. They'll tell you about well, their denomination they were baptized into. But they don't know about the Spirit of God dwelling in them, being poured out upon them, as was promised. Look, Jesus wasn't concerned with your water baptism. He got water baptized. I think it's important. I'm not downplaying that. But Jesus didn't come to baptize in water. He came to baptize with what? With the Holy Spirit. That's the deal. That's the newness of life. And so they pull him aside and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. That must have taken some gentleness on the side of Priscilla and Aquila, right? And it must have taken a lot of humility. Do you have that kind of humility? We're about to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have grown up in churches where like, we don't talk about that. That was evil. We're supposed to avoid that. And here I am saying to you, hey, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you inadvertently were baptized into this baptism of continual cycle of repentance and sin and forgiveness and repentance or sin, forgiveness, repentance and all those things. But you've never been told about the life in the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life. No one ever told. I meet people all the time that don't know about that. And so maybe you're sitting here and now you're starting, well, you know, I, when I grew up, we don't, we don't talk about those things, the Spirit-filled life. We don't talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's for kooky charismatics and stuff. And you're already shutting me off. Why? Because Apollos could have done the same thing, right? But instead, Apollos was teachable. And that's really important, gang. Even for me, I love to keep learning. Have any of you arrived yet at the fullness of the knowledge of God? then come on up here and take my spot because I'm still learning. And not everybody's going to teach you something worthy. I mean, sometimes you listen and you go, yeah, you're a wacko. You know, that's wacky stuff. I don't know where you're getting that. There's a lot of wacky doctrine out there, right? But sometimes you meet someone and they open up the scriptures to you and they show it to you. And if you got a little base knowledge to work from, they go, yeah. You go, wow, that's awesome. I never saw that before. Has anybody ever showed you something from the word? And you're like, oh, I've never seen that before. That's awesome. So you got to be teachable to get that. So Apollos was teachable. And so I think that's really cool. He explained to them the way of God more accurately. They could have heard him preach and said, you know what? Let's not bother. It's not, doctrine's not really important. I mean, he's a powerful preacher. He's the sermonator preaching with boldness and with power. Why bother? Look, gang, we live in a church day and age today where doctrine and the importance of learning is really belittled. Do you agree with that? That people don't go to church. Well, let me ask you, instead of making an assumption, how do people choose churches today? Well, maybe it's the music. Well, we go to that church because we love the music. We don't care if the pastor's teaching truth or not, or maybe they do, you know, that's all right. But sometimes the most important thing is we love the music. Look, there was a time in my life where I was learning and growing. I still am, don't get me wrong there. Still learning and growing. And I started listening to the radio station and verse-by-verse Bible teaching. And because now I was learning the entirety of the Word of God, because doesn't the Bible say all Scripture is God-inspired? So should we learn all Scripture? Because aren't there some things for you in all the Scripture that you won't learn if you only study some Scripture? So I start getting lessons from the Word of God from all Scripture. And I'm reading things I had never read before. I'm learning things I had never read before. You know what happened? I began to get pumped up about God. Because I was learning some things 
I hadn't learned before. And it was really exciting to me. The problem was, is I was at a church at the time where I wasn't being taught the entirety of Scripture. And at that time, I had a decision to make for my family to say, you know what? We need to be in a place where we can learn the whole counsel of God's Word. And I'm just being honest. This was a process in my life that I had to go through. I wanted to hear all of God's Word and be taught all of God's Word. As we say, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And it has challenged and changed my life. I've seen so much growth. Why? Because someone taught me accurately the Word of God. And the Spirit of God continues to teach me accurately. And I have pastors that I rely on to help me learn accurately the Word of God. Because some people have learned inaccurately the Word of God. And maybe some things in your life you learn inaccurately. I got this slide because it's Mother's Day. And so you might say, honey, where do you want to go to eat? And here's what you'll say. I don't care. And they go, oh, great, we got a place for you to go. We can go to the I don't care grill. It's just for that occasion. We say, well, dear, where would you like to go to eat? Well, I don't care. You know they really care because they don't say it until you give a suggestion. They say, well, that's not really where I want to eat. Well, then why didn't you say so? Why did you say I don't care when you care? Again, I say this to say that what I see in the body of Christ right now is I see people, a lot of people eating at the I don't care cafe, spiritually speaking. As long as the music's good and there's some excitement and a lot of energy, I'm not really concerned with whether or not I'm learning the whole counsel of the Word of God. And I appreciate that about Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. And believe me, I'm not here to highlight Calvary Chapel or we do it all right. Please don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is the whole counsel of God's Word is important. So whether you learn it in church or on your own and have listened to tapes at home or CDs or something on the internet, You need to have the whole counsel of the Word of God because some of that might take you into some places where you really need for your benefit of your life. You understand what I'm saying? So they explained to him the way of God more accurately. One more thing before we go on. He wasn't attempting to deceive anybody. Whatever he knew, he taught it with accuracy. And just because he taught with boldness didn't mean he taught with fullness. So verse 27 says, when he decided to cross to Achaia, that is where Corinth is. So he's going to head on to Corinth. The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Those who had come to faith through Paul's ministry in Corinth. Now Apollo shows up. He starts to teach there. And he's becoming this powerful teacher now, having a greater fullness of understanding the word of God. His teaching is more full. His teaching is more dynamic, even, you might say. And he's now strengthening people there, so much so that Paul has to write to the Corinthians because divisions had started. Paul planted the church. Apollos comes along, and he waters it. But he says it's God that gives the increase because some of them were saying, well, we really think Apollos is a more powerful preacher than Paul. And others said, well, Paul's the most powerful preacher that we know. And there was the division that happened in Corinth because they were both powerful men of God. And divisions over people are wrong. You weren't baptized into John Wesley. You weren't baptized into Martin Luther. You were baptized into Jesus Christ. Martin Luther didn't die for you. John Wesley didn't die for you. You know, it's when we talk to people, when we meet people, and you begin to ask them about their salvation, you begin to ask them about their life, their walk with God. A lot of times some will say, well, you know, do you go to church somewhere? Well, you know, I used to, but... Well, are you, know, are you a Christian? Are you, you know, are you a believer? Well, I was baptized in the Catholic church when I was an infant. 
or, well, I, I belong to the Methodist church. And usually that's an indication that maybe they don't know Jesus. Because when you read the whole counsel of God's word, you align yourself with Jesus. You're a follower, not of John Wesley. You're not a follower of Martin Luther. You're not a follower of Chuck Smith. You're not a follower of John the Baptist. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You may attend a Methodist church. You may attend a Baptist church. But to be baptized into John's baptism means you're identifying yourself as a follower of John. To be baptized into the Methodist church means you're identifying yourself with the Methodist church. I'm not picking the Methodist, to the Baptist church means you're identifying yourself with that. And the right thing to do from the bottom of my heart is to say, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I happen to attend a Baptist church. There's a big significance in the order of that. Do you understand that? So he arrives, he strengthens, verse 28 says, he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he knows that. We don't see him get rebaptized. We don't see him, they lay hands on him to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. None of that happens with him. We see that his teaching is now more accurate. And maybe, maybe, maybe what we can see in there is a greater sense of boldness as he now refutes literally goes toe-to-toe in a contest with the Jews over the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that John the Baptist had pointed toward. So with all those uh, loose ends hanging, we'll run down to verse uh, 1 of chapter 19, and we'll meet the second group. Now, while Apollos was at Corinth, where we left him, Paul, having passed through the upper regions came to Ephesus. Remember Paul now on his third missionary journey, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Pisidian, Antioch, making his way over to where? To Ephesus. He'd been blocked from going there before. Now God paves the way. He goes to Ephesus and look what happens. He meets a group of people, 12 guys. And it says, and finding some disciples, he said to them, I doubt this was out of the blue. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What an interesting question. I mean, it's not like, hi, I'm Paul. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, This was probably not like out of the blue. It's sort of like my asking the question to somebody, you know, have you been born again? That's a good one to ask. When you meet somebody and you talk about church, a lot of times I'll ask people, have you been born again? Or do you understand what it means to be born again? And if I get that glossy-eyed look or they begin to affiliate immediately with their denomination, I begin to think maybe they haven't been born again. Maybe they've just gone to church their whole life and they've not been born again. So I go, well, this entails some more questions. And so Paul, in their conversation, starts to pick up on something. They're called disciples. And that's one of the things that confuses people. That's one of the things where people disagree. If they're disciples, that's usually a word used of followers of Jesus, right? But not necessarily. You can be a disciple of anybody. A disciple is just a learner. So people that believe that the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is all at one time when you're saved will say that these people were not believers in Jesus. Those that believe that there can be, and in often many cases there is, a secondary work of the Spirit of God coming upon a person for power would say they were already disciples of Jesus, they just hadn't been baptized with the Spirit yet. They just didn't know. 
So there's reasons on both sides, but I'm just leaving you with that discussion. So finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit having believed? So they believed in something, whether it was, you know, maybe they knew that Jesus had lived, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had died, was crucified, died, was buried, and that he rose again. When you believe that, he says, did you have like the Pentecost experience? Like, did, the, did you have, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, if they are disciples of Jesus, in terms of they know about Jesus, and you get all the Holy Spirit at the time you're saved, that would be a stupid question, wouldn't it? Because he would just know, well, you got saved, you received the entirety, the fullness of the Spirit in your life at that time. So that would be a silly question. So if they're truly believers, then Paul is expecting that there's a secondary work subsequent to salvation, which we do see, by the way, when Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans, right? Philip takes the gospel there. He preaches. They believe. Word gets back to Jerusalem that the Spirit of God had not come upon any of them. So I think it's uh, Peter and John come up to Samaria, and they lay hands on them for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So they had been baptized by Philip. They'd been saved, one would assume, from the conversation, but still not baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 8. So you can look at, there's no specific way. As a matter of fact, I'll just read this to you. This is from John Piper. I wanted to quote a non-charismatic source for you on this. This is what John Piper said. The point is this. Whether Luke expects these kinds of effects to happen in one initiatory receiving of the Holy Spirit, as some say, or in a two-step process with the baptism of the Spirit after a person is converted, or in an ongoing combination of these three, one thing is clear. Luke expects the receiving of the Holy Spirit to be a real, identifiable experience of the living God, not just a logical inference from a human act of will. That's John Piper saying that. So what he's saying is that some people will say, well, when you get saved, you get all the Spirit there is. There's really no experience in your life. It's just something you know. I know that I got to have the Spirit of God to be saved. I make a profession. I believe in Jesus. I give my life to him. And then I assume, based on that, that the Spirit of God is in me. And we believe that's true. Because Romans 8 says, you can't be saved if you don't have the Spirit of God in you. But that's just a head knowledge because you may not have any experience that. But Paul seems to indicate that as he's talking to them, he sees something missing, doesn't he? Otherwise, why would he ask the question? Having believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And look at their answer. So they said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. They said, we don't know what you're talking about. And a lot of believers today know God the Father and know God the Son, Jesus the Son, they don't know about the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the indwelling nature of the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the baptism with the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised himself for power and happened at Pentecost. Evidently, they too, like Apollos, had missed the teaching about the baptism of the Spirit. Well, how important really? I mean, is this really important? Is teaching, is information really that important, Pastor? You bet it is, especially if you're a guy named Hiroo Onada. You see, he died at age 91 in 2014. Well, what's so special about this guy is that he was a Japanese soldier during World War II, and he'd been deployed to an island in the Philippines. And on that island in the Philippines, he stayed for 29 years after the war ended. 
they tried to tell him, tried to explain to him the war was over. He refused to believe it and was still acting on previous information that he was at war and for 29 years lived that way because he didn't know it had ended. Well, these people have been living not regarding something that had ended, but they didn't know something had started. You think that guy's life changed when finally, 29 years later, they convinced him the war was over and he could come out of hiding. He was eating, scrounging for food for 29 years. This guy is amazing. But you think information is important. How about if you live in North Korea and you don't know the internet exists? You see, in North Korea, they're so heavily bound by the government, so heavily censored, they don't know, for the most part, the average North Korean citizen does not know that the internet exists. So let's say in a similar thing here, you show up in North Korea, you get through security, you know, you, you get through the borders, and you meet a group of computer science students in North Korea. And you start talking about computer science, you're into computers and stuff, and you start talking about computers, and you say, so, do you love to surf the web? And they're like, web? What's that? And you're like, what, what do you mean, what's that? The World Wide Web, you know, the internet. You're like, uh, we've never even heard of the internet. You'd be like, are you kidding me? You've never heard of the internet? And that's what they're basically saying there. The Holy Spirit, we've never heard. And which is interesting because John told them that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had taught to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how did these guys miss out? I don't know, same way a lot of people miss out. They just missed it. In the teaching, the church they grew up in, this wasn't there. And it's important to their lives, just like could you imagine the earth-shattering truth in your life if you had no idea the internet exists and all of a sudden someone goes, check this out. You'd be like, oh, man. Like first it'd be really confusing, right? But then you'd figure, how did I ever live without it? See, the baptism with the Spirit is kind of like that. Once you receive it, whether you receive it at the time of salvation or whether you receive it later on, who cares? The point is that at some point you receive it and it's life changing. And you'll say, how did I ever try to live this Christian life trying to do this thing in my own power, failing, repenting, asking for forgiveness, but yet lacking vitality, lacking power, lacking love, lacking evidence, Evidence? Yeah, evidence. I'm going to give you a couple more examples and then we'll close. Let me read a little farther and then I'll give you some examples. So he said, we haven't so much as heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. And so Paul says to them, well, then what in the world were you baptized into? I mean, who baptized you? What, what, did, what did you get baptized into? In other words, what were you identified with? Paul's trying to figure this out. You ever talk to someone like that? You're trying to get a, get a pulse on where in the world they are. Well, I was baptized into Methodist. I was baptized into Protestant or baptized into Lutheran or what? What were you baptized? Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. Oh, Paul says, now I get it. Now I see. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. You see, early church, they don't have the New Testament they don't have all this codified. That you can imagine what it would have been like to try to pass on all these truths and how you get partial things here and there. Some people still stuck in the old covenant. Look, a lot of churches, 
save people into another old covenant. Well, now you're a Christian. Now here's a whole new set of laws for you to follow. Instead of preaching to them Jesus Christ and him crucified, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for the newness of life as you're a follower of Jesus. We're no longer under the law. Could you imagine them going, oh, you're still, you're still doing the law thing. No, no, no. Where the spirit of the Lord is, Paul would say, there's liberty. And they'd be like, really? Like, we feel so guilty all the time. We always feel con- condemned and we're still waiting for the Savior thing. And Paul's like, he's here. He's come and he's poured out his spirit. And Paul's just like bubbling over to tell him that. And he says, John even said that, guys. He's, I know you're following John. And if you're following John, John pointed to Jesus. He said, I have to decrease. Jesus has to increase. John got his head cut off in prison, but still he had disciples out there. And so now they're being instructed more fully. Watch this. When they heard this, they said, well, we want to know how exactly that works. No, is that what it says? They said, well, we, don't, we want to understand the, the, how does the Spirit pour out? When does that happen? How does this work? They don't ask any questions. Just says, when they heard this, they were rebaptized. They were baptized instead of in John's name, identifying with John. They said, oh, we got to jump over to Jesus. It's Jesus who, we, who it's all about, not John, not Methodist, not Wesley, not Luther. It's Jesus, not Chuck Smith. I'll include us in that too. It's not about that. It's not about Calvary Chapel. And they heard this. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, only incidents of rebaptism in the Bible. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. That's not their age. That's how many of them there were. So they had their own personal Pentecost. Right? And there's some people in the church today that need their own personal Pentecost. It's not because like there's some special thing and you got to know our knowledge. It's available to everybody. It's normative. It's what it should be like. The spirit-filled life is the life every Christian should be living, but so few Christians have ever been taught about it. And if you don't believe me, start asking. You meet someone, you go to church, I go to church, okay, have you ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit? What if I ask you that question? What if I ask you the question that Paul asked? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Would you give me an academic answer? Well, I know that, you know, Romans chapter 8 says, or would you say, I know experientially that my life changed? Here's the thing. So you guys know I've shared my lack of swimming ability with you, right? You know I'm a terrible swimmer. I sink like a stone. I dredge the bottom. Uh, it's horrible. I've been trying to get better, but it's bad. So one day I say, hey, let's go to the pool together. And I take my rubber duckies and my arm floaties and we go to the pool together. And all of a sudden in the pool, the spirit of Michael Phelps comes upon me, right? Now, you know, that does a few things to me (laughs) Uh, because you know, you see, you understand what it means to have the spirit of somebody come upon you. Not only does it make me a great swimmer, gives me an addiction evidently too, but you know, But we're not talking about the spirit of Michael Phelps. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. So permit me uh, the grace to use him as an example of a phenomenal swimmer. So you understand intuitively that if the spirit of Michael Phelps comes on me in the pool, that you're going to see something. What's going to change about me? You, I'm going to be swimming, not just swimming. I'm going to be going for it, man. You're going to go, what happened to that guy? Spirit of Michael Phelps, man. Can I pray for you? (laughs) You slow swimmers, you. Or, or there's been some guys in the church, again, permit me one more, 
there's been some guys in the church, they've been trying to get me to go golfing. Now, I don't golf, right? Like, it's just not my thing. I did putt-putt when I was young, but I haven't been on a golf course in years. But they've invited me to go golfing. I said, yeah, I'd really rather not. I'm not really a golfer. But if I knew that I could have access to the spirit of Tiger Woods, now again, permit me, I know we see, my wife's going, uh-uh, no, no, because you recognize what that means. It means the totality of the character. I get his golfing abilities and some other things too that I may not want. But you understand the illustration that Tiger Woods, phenomenal golfer. So they don't know it. They invite me golfing. I got the spirit of Tiger Woods in my life. What kind of golfer am I? Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. So why is it that when we talk about the Spirit of God coming upon a person, we go, yeah, I'm not really sure uh, if, uh, if uh, there's something, ha- I don't know, I prayed and maybe something is different in my life or maybe not, I don't know, I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade or I gave my life to Christ you know, a number of years ago, but there's really been no change. Then I would say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because if the spirit of Tiger Woods would change my life, if the spirit of Michael Phelps would change my life in ways you have identified without even me defining anything, then should not the spirit of God change people's lives? So here's what we're going to do as we close for the day. You know, this is not meant to condemn or there's no such thing as a second class Christian. We all fight the battles. Matter of fact, Paul will write in his letter to the Ephesians, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing, it's not a one-time thing, and that's it, done, did that, you know, walks forward at Calvary Chapel, had him lay hands, pray for me, that's it. It's an ongoing thing, folks. God keeps filling you, you keep pouring out. God keeps filling you, you keep pouring out. You know what I find in my life? I find that the more I pour the Word of God in, the more God pours His Holy Spirit in, and the more comes out by faith. If you go, you know what? like Apollos or like these 12, there's just something missing. I just know I have the information, but there's no power. There's no vitality. There's no following. There's no example of my life doesn't really look anything like Jesus. I'm still living in sin. I'm still struggling with that. I want to invite you today because now you've learned more accurately that you too can receive what Jesus promised and be baptized with the Holy Spirit for power to be a witness. Why not, right? Unless you say, yeah, been baptized, filled all the time, praise the Lord. But if you're questioning it, if you're doubting it yourself, then we'll pray for you and pray that God's Spirit will fill your life. Amen? Amen.